and welcome to the EPP Group podcast on the Maastricht Treaty, 30 years of. My name is Jack Parrick and I'm delighted to be hosting this conversation out of the European Parliament. To mark this occasion, I'm joined by Jeroen Lenners, an MEP and member of the European People's Party Group and is on the task force for the future of Europe. Currently in the EU, we have a conference on the future of Europe looking at how people and citizens want to live in the EU in the future. Hey, Jeroen, how are you doing? Um, very well, thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. So, Jeroen is here in the recording studio in the belly of the European Parliament with me, but we're also joined by Georgina Wright, who's a director of the Europe programme at the Institut Montaigne in France, and she's joining us from Paris. How are you doing this morning, Georgina? I'm really well, thank you. So, 30 years of the Maastricht Treaty. I mean, how important, Jeroen, is the Maastricht Treaty for you as a sort of serving member of the European Parliament? What does it mean to you? Well, I think it's on, on two levels. First of all, because I, I am from the area, so I, I was born about 40 kilometres from Maastricht. I mean, obviously, I was only like seven years old when the treaty was signed. Do you so, remember it? No, no, I don't. I was seven years old. I, uh, I once got the, the question on, the, on, the, on another programme, where were you when the Maastricht Treaty was signed? And I said I didn't know. And actually, my, um, my music teacher... Uh, was watching the program and he sent me a text. You're actually playing the recorder in my uh, <laughs> in my classroom. So no, I don't remember that at all. But for I come from the Limburg area. That's the province. Uh, we have more borders with Germany and Belgium than with the rest of the Netherlands. So it's very European. And there, there is really a sense of pride to be connected to such an important uh, milestone in European history because that is in the end what the Maastricht Treaty is. So in for us. Like culturally, historically, it's really important. And for the European Union as a whole, when the European Union was born in Maastricht, and that is, is hugely important. One of the things it did is it gave people European citizenships. After Maastricht, which was signed on the 7th of February in 1992, uh, when it came into force in 1993, it meant that people weren't just citizens of their own country, but were also citizens of Europe, of the European Union. Georgina, I wonder if you think... Uh, that is the most significant change or whether there were other issues that, that sort of changed after that time? I mean, that's a, it's a really good question. I, I guess it kind of depends who you ask. Obviously, um, as Jeroen said, it really was a turning point uh, for EU integration. And, in, and I mean, it contributed to many of the successes uh, that we see today, but also some of the failures, I think. Um, you know, you've got to remember the context at the time. 12 countries, you know, 12 member states at that point, um, a background of kind of um, tension in Europe, you know, the re well, one of the positives, obviously, the fall, the Berlin Wall reunification of, of, of Germany. But then you had, you know, Saddam Hussein of the Iraq invading Kuwait. You had uh, Yugoslavian tensions already starting and this sense of Europe that we need to do more, not only internally, but we need to be a more credible power on the international stage. And so what you saw were huge kind of advancements on on trying to deepen the economic and monetary side of, uh, of the EU, but also doing more on common foreign security policy and coordinating justice and home affairs. So there was a lot there that really paved the way for the Europe of today. But as I said, there was also, um, if you look at the migration crisis and the Eurozone crisis, I mean, they sort of betray traces of an incomplete integration. You know, the EU had sufficient competence and so lawmaking powers to attract blame uh, for failing to act enough. 
but it also didn't have enough power to really solve the problem fully. So that's where you saw the EU really making a leap, um, but it wasn't the full integration and we're still seeing some of the problems today. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I mean, I think probably you and you and I, you're in a, of the same generation, at least. And I think mm. Georgina, you are mm. uh, relatively of the same age. All of us were have lived our most of our lives in a sort of post Maastricht Europe. None of us really lived uh, before before that. Uh, I wonder, uh, Georgina, there talked about sort of successes and failures. Right now in Europe, we're having obviously this, you know, concern about security. Do you think Maastricht Your Own did enough for joining together Europe's security? The, the foreign policy arm of the EU got built after, after mm. Maastricht. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's, I think it's interesting because, of course, um, also the treaty uh, in, in 92 was a political compromise. Uh, there were different member states with different wishes and different limits as to how far they would want to go. And the discussion in Europe is always, uh, what kind of competences do you sort of transfer to the European level? What do you really want to keep yourself? And I think if you look at the development of the European Union in the past 30 years, on many internal issues like the common market, uh, uh, like competition policy, like trade, uh, we have made huge developments and we are properly a, a global power player. But on the security aspects, on the common foreign and security policy, we are still uh, not there. And it's not because of a, a treaty, I think. I mean, yes, maybe Maastricht could have done more, but the, 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 the fundamental problem underlying the fact that Maastricht didn't solve it is that we have different member states with different interests that are sometimes hard to merge into one policy. If all the European member states would agree on foreign policy, you would not need a treaty to have a successful foreign policy. So in that sense, I think Maastricht probably did uh, the best it could in the time where it was set. But I think now looking back 30 years later, uh, absolutely more needs to be done. The whole idea that, for instance, to impose sanctions on third countries, we still need unanimity is, I think, an outdated concept if you want to be a relevant geopolitical player um, and these are issues that we might need to look at again especially now we're talking about the conference on the future of Europe. I think probably uh, people in EU spheres would want the conference of the future of Europe to be probably having a little bit more of an effect than it perhaps is right now but I mean, we've seen treaty change since Maastricht we've seen Lisbon. I wonder um, uh, Georgina what you think about this. Do you think that the treaties of the European Union Obviously, Maastricht being the real fundamental shift in sort of vision for the EU. But do you think the treaties right now serve their purpose? I mean, it's a really good question. I think I'm almost going to kind of turn that question on its head. Uh, and I think the Conference on the Future of Europe is interesting because it is this huge democratic exercise where you're asking Europeans, you know, not those people in Brussels and those people who participate in meetings in Brussels. You're actually asking EU citizens, what do they want from the future? What do they expect from the EU? What do they want it to do? And the treaty is basically turning that into, you know, legal text and, and, and sort of placing the limits on what the EU can and cannot do. I think um, when I was sort of researching for this podcast and thinking back, because I was also quite young when when the Maastricht Treaty was was passed, um, 
it, it strikes me that a lot of people um, at the time said, well, this, is, this isn't a democratic exercise, all this talking about the treaty. Um, there were mem members of national parliaments who felt very strongly about it. I mean, you know, I'm European, but I'm also British. And, and at the time, if you looked at that, they had something called, you know, the Maastricht rebels, people who felt that this was really taking away huge powers from member states um, and to an EU level, which simply wasn't democratic. So I think the EU can always do more. And, you know, the fact that we have multiple treaties means that that it is forever changing and trying to face up to some of the challenges and to be able to better deliver but I think the, dem the democracy side is also going to be very important because as we look at some of the things that the EU isn't doing quite right and we try and resolve those, we need to make sure that a lot of people, if they're not on board, at least they understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. You know, it had a huge impact in that respect. I remember because it's uh, Georgina spoke about the Maastricht rebels, and I remember <clears throat> my wife is from the UK, and we were once in a, in a pub in Kent, which is sort of the county closest to France, and there were three gentlemen sitting next to us on a table, and they were asking, they started to chat with us, and they were telling us how they liked living there because it was easy to go to France, and the, the wine was much cheaper there, and they could take it back to the UK, and they liked this particular pub because they had a new Portuguese chef, and he cooked so well. And we were chatting, and all of a sudden they also asked where we were from. So my wife said, where are you from? I said, I'm from from uh, the Netherlands. Oh, where in the Netherlands? We're at the area of Maastricht. I said, ah, oh, Maastricht. I said, how do you know Maastricht? And they said, yeah, we've been suffering under the Maastricht Treaty for far too long. <laughs> and it was pre-Brexit. Pre so it made a huge uh, a huge impact also in, the, I think, the, the, the image of, of Europe. And I think it's right. We also had problems in other countries. And it also marks a little bit the end, I think, of, of uh, sort of a permissive consensus in mm. Europe. Uh, there was always Europe was not really debated among the citizens of Europe. It was uh, something that politicians did and it was okay. And I think in the period after uh, Maastricht, you saw a real debate developing mm. on what the European Union is, what it should do, what it should not do. And I think we are still in that period which started with Maastricht, which is not a bad thing, because if you want to have a sustainable European Union uh, in the future, uh, it needs to have legitimacy and it needs to be uh, supported by sort of a democratic uh, discussion. Not everybody needs to agree with it, but yeah. it needs to be discussed. Yeah, my, can I? Can I? Yeah, sorry, please. come in on this because you're you you know you're a member of the European Parliament, and so I feel sort of bad saying this in your place. But you know, Maastricht also strengthened the powers of of, of, of different EU institutions, including the European yeah. Parliament. You know, uh, saying well, actually, um, the European Parliament should have a greater say, should have you know greater legislative powers. It should have a role in saying whether or not the EU budget is right, and also making sure that the term of the you know the the president of the European Commission's term would coincide with the term of the European Parliament. So there was at the time a reflection on how you could make it more democratic. But in, I absolutely agree with Jeroen, in the sort of public kind of sentiment and, and, and when they think back to that time, they really think it was a power grab where they had very little say. And so I think that's why this, this conference on the future of Europe, but also the fact that people are talking much more about what the EU does is is actually probably a very good thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, the Maastricht was the first idea where people started talking about the federal Europe as well. Interesting to hear what you say, say, said about that, about their feelings in Maastricht. My, a close family member of mine, should we say, of an older generation, was ardently against um, 
sort of EU integration vote has has openly said he voted against he's British as well voted against the referendum in 1975 mm-hmm. but says that when Maastricht came he realized the fight was lost and we either had to go with the Europeans or not and actually it became in Britain at least and I don't want to make this too UK focused but um about identity and this is this idea of the the citizenship and the, and also what Maastricht did, did, and maybe we can move on there, is to talk about the euro. It opened the door for the single currency. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think, but of course, every country has its own uh, uh, memories and, and, and approach to, to the, the Maastricht Treaty. But I think the fact that it gave citizenship, uh, I mean, for me, it was always European citizenship is, is sort of an, an added citizenship it doesn't replace your nationality i am i am by heart uh, a, a limburger then i am dutch and then i am european and this is the, these three identities they coexist uh, uh, at the same time so for me this was never a problem but i understand this this debate uh, but indeed like like you said we have the euro and i think it's very interesting to see now i mean we have the first generation of of 18 year olds in the european union that grew up uh, that never experienced any other currency. Never uh, saw an Austrian shilling. No, or a Dutch yeah. guilder. Or, exactly, uh, yeah. Which or is, a Belgian franc. Or a Belgian franc, <laughs> yes, which, uh, which I miss sometimes because my grandmother was Belgian and every time we were going to play cards there, they had this big pot of Belgian francs we could play with. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, I, so it, so but this is the thing that sort of twee currency feels. I had a discussion with some friends recently that current currency in the EU feels a bit of like a twee exciting thing when you go to Poland and you have to change into Zlotys or into Sweden. Or yeah. It's like, oh, this is a fun, weird little thing going on. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like norm. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't. You know, absolutely. It, it feels very weird. Uh, it's mm. good for uh, for airport shops, I think, because at the end of your trip, you always need to spend your uh, <laughs> your zlotys or your uh, your pounds or whatever. Um, but it, it, I mean, it also so we are we are quite some time after the Maastricht Treaty now, and we have whole generations growing up in Europe uh, that have not experienced anything else, uh, and also take for granted uh, what Maastricht brought. And I, I mean, I sometimes wonder, and I, I don't want to sound too old, but but if you look at my lifetime or your lifetime or Georgina's lifetime and you see the, the, the development that the European Union went through, I mean, if you would have predicted in, in 1984 when I was born that Hungary, that the Czech Republic and Slovakia would be members mm-hmm. of the same union as Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, or that you could pay with the same currency in Austria and in Lithuania, I think nobody would have believed you in 1984. Yet this is where we are. And we can still criticize mm-hmm. it. We can always try to improve it. But we also need to have some sort of a, a basic understanding that what we achieved in the past 30 years, in the past 40 years, is really impressive. Yeah. Mm. Georgina, I wonder if you think that that momentum carries on, specifically thinking about the single currency. Do you think, you know, Poland, Bulgaria, you know, Denmark, whatever, those countries that, that aren't in the euro just will eventually due to the sort of world we live in now, be forced through that, whether whether sort of the EU integration is important or not? I mean, in the treaty, uh, you know, uh, more subsequent treaties, it made it a condition that if you join the EU, you would eventually need to adopt um, the euro. So I think that is still at some point the plan. But I think what, you know, the design of the economic and monetary union, there are clearly problems there. I mean, you hear the French um, finance minister just, I think, two weeks ago saying, again, you know, the criteria, the Maastricht criteria is outdated. You know, it's not it's not sufficient to kind of level 
uh, will respond to today's problems and the sense that you've got this tension between those member states who think, well, no, that, that criteria is in place. Um, it, 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 it ensures fiscal discipline between all these different countries that have different economies, but the same, you know, a part of the same market and have the same, um, you know, euro, the same currency. And those who say, well, actually, we need to revise this criteria because we need to make sure that, yes, there is stability uh, in in the in the monetary union, but there is also growth, and I think you know before we can really talk about whether there will be uh, you know five, six, seven new euro uh, members, we need to really you know, double down and think about think back to this uh, these criteria. Think are they still up to the challenge today? And how can we uh, change them? But that is an issue that it's, you really are opening Pandora's box and you're really seeing the divides between those countries who are fiscal hawks and those who would be a bit more fiscal relaxed, I think. So it's going to be the big, I think, one of the big debates that shapes the EU over the next couple of years. I absolutely, absolutely agree with what Georgina says there. And it, this this sort of opposition or this, this, uh, this different opinions on, on how... Uh, such a union should be formed was already there in, in Maastricht as well, of course, mm. because mm. one of the sort of things that Maastricht didn't do well, I think, is they decided to make uh, economic and monetary union and they really developed the monetary leg of this union, uh, sort of assuming that the economies of the member states would be coordinated, move into the same direction. And we saw in later years that this didn't happen so easily. Uh, and one of the things is that we agreed on criteria, but then when somebody proposed during the master treaty, but should we also make uh, some rules about what happens if a member state doesn't abide by these criteria? Everybody was like, no, 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 that's not necessary. We don't do that. And then we saw, of course, the first countries to not abide by the criteria were countries like Germany and France, or big countries, so nobody dared to say anything. And then later onwards, we had Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and we had a huge uh, financial crisis. And this could have all been, well, maybe not prevented, but it could have all been handled much better if in Maastricht we already had clear procedures about what's happening if you're not uh, abiding by these criteria. And of course, you can always have discussions about the criteria. I mean, 3% uh, and 60% there, you know, it could, could have also been 55 and 4%. There, there were compromises at the moment. So it's always good to look at those, but I think the, the, uh, the, the founding principle of those criteria, the fact that you cannot have uh, too big of a debt, the fact that you cannot have too much of a gap in your um, in your budget every year as a member state is is very very sane still today. And to come back on that very quickly, I mean, the the, the perennial question is how can you have a com you know a com common currency if you don't have a common fiscal policy? And the questions now about how you revise the rules about that, the rules that kind of underpin the, 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 the economic and monetary policy, but also those rules about what you do when people don't respect them. There's, again, the d democracy question there about, well, who, who decides those rules? And again, there is, I think, a perception sometimes among, you know, publics that it's all being decided at the EU level with very little say. And that's why I say, as it will, because it will inevitably become a big subject of debate for the next couple of years. I think the European Parliament's going to have to do even more on this. Um, but also it's going to be very interesting to see how it pans out at the national level and even sometimes the local level. That's an interesting thing, though, because not necessarily only on, on the monetary union, but in general, 
uh, this this feeling that sometimes persists that things are decided in Brussels at the European level. I sometimes feel that mm. we we sort of artificially, uh, very mm. often at national level, we artificially create some sort of a distance between the national level and the European level. It's almost as if uh, heads of government travel from their a mm. member state's capital to a remote island somewhere that is Brussels. It's like the Star Wars Council. They it come is, in from yeah. the universe. But I mean, every every decision that's being made here uh, is is being decided by these 27 member states. They all have mm. their heads of uh, government or the ministers uh, agreeing to something. We have the commission that consists of uh, people appointed by these governments. We have the European Parliament that is directly elected mm. from all these member states. So I would really wish for the future of Europe that we could see Europe also more as an integral part of national decision making rather than mm. something completely alien to what we're doing in the member states because it's simply not true i actually mm. often say this this you know as a journalist in brussels i, I it, it's it's hard to explain but specifically during the brexit campaign as well i think people don't quite understand the council negotiations that happen that every single thing that is happening is thrashed out by attaches and mm. you know ambassadors and constantly negotiated between the governments back and forth it's not just sort of leaders come in and rubber stamp something that the commission's been doing and i think that you know that it's because because they're sort of closed door negotiations we don't talk about them so much and therefore um, perhaps it's you know it's it's difficult to explain that actually the governments of the of the ah. European Union are well, hugely like, powerful. There are, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are four stages, aren't there? The Commission makes a proposal, and then the Commission, so the twenty-seven governments, discuss, make amendments, propose amendments. Um, the European Parliament committees do the same, and then there's that extra layer of negotiation where you get. The European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council trying to hammer out one text. And that's usually why, you know, negotiations take so long. But throughout that, there's a lot of consultation with, yeah. you know, civil society, with the private sector and even as citizens, you can pitch your ideas. So absolutely, it is not this thing that happens up there, out there yeah. without any say. But it, it is, I think, what I meant by the democratic, you know, level and, and the debate is just, I think, there is a risk that that it will be perceived as something that is being imposed at the EU level by these people who you know work in ivory towers, mm. when actually we're going to have to work much harder. We as you know journalists, as think tankers, as mm. members of parliament, at trying to really democrat like democratize that debate and make it accessible. No, I agree. I agree there. I think there there is definitely room for improvement as well when you talk about openness and transparency, particularly in the council, of course, in the parliament, in these negotiations that Georgina mentioned between council, parliament and the commission. Uh, there can be more openness and more transparency. But I think the key is also in the way you approach this from from your national uh, political debate. Because uh, like I think the best example is always when they come once every seven years to do the budget negotiations for the next seven years. Every single head of government, regardless of whether he's a Christian Democrat or a social Democrat or a liberal or whatever, they come out of the meeting after they have a deal and they will always say, I want this and this and this uh, and the other things we don't like, it was imposed by them and them and them. Mm -hmm. And I think if we continue to see Europe as sort of a zero-sum game where you go to Brussels and you either win or you lose... And then you come back and you are proud of the things you won, but you complain about the things you lost. Uh, that is, is never going to work for the for the long run. You really need to see Europe as as an effort to make the cake a little bit bigger for everybody. 
and also explain that there is a compromise, that there are reasons for this compromise, and that you defend that compromise as your own. And this is something that is being done not enough, in my opinion. Fair enough. I'm going to move this back to the treaties. I'm going to try and bring us... Yes. I'm going to ask you uh, both the same question, actually. So we have the Council on the fu- the, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe, which is this negotiation where Ursula von der Leyen and uh, everybody that's involved has said that it's not out of the question that it could result eventually in treaty change. If the results of the conference come back, the EU citizens want to change the treaties and that's fundamental, then that's potentially possible. For you, for both of you, what would be the, the biggest things you would want changed in the treaties if the conference resulted in that? I'll start with you, Euron. Oh, that is, a, that is a, a, difficult, a difficult question. I think, uh, first of all, and this is not even a major policy point, uh, but it's something that hurts the credibility and the image of the European Union a lot, and the European Parliament in particular, it's the, the, the two seats of the European Parliament. Uh, this is the treaty requirement that this Parliament travels once a month from Brussels to Strasbourg. It's something that European citizens do not understand. It's something that costs a lot of money, bad for the environment, and it's simply bad for the the image of the European Union. So that would be the first thing I would strike out. It's not feasible; it will be done. But yeah. if I have my uh, if I have my choice, that would be um, that would be the first one. Georgina, I have to say, sitting in Paris, that's not something that would go down very well. <laughs> France, France really quite likes the fact that that the European Parliament, you know, they come all the way down to Strasbourg, and plus you get to, you know. Uh, great food and beautiful views and all the rest of it. But um, so <laughs> I think I think they do. Me, they do have good food in Brussels as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of my um, things that I've been thinking about is a smaller uh, commission. Um, I know it's really complicated because at the moment you have you know a president and then you have vice presidents and commissioners and there's one per member state and I know it's very important for member states to feel that you know represented and and they have a say and they get to appoint someone and all the rest of it but I do think that it's very unclear when you're trying to look and you know you you sort of don't look at the EU every single day and you don't focus in on and you don't interact with it on a daily basis it's very difficult to understand what are the different portfolios who does what there seems to be some crossover um so I think as smaller commission would would be more smaller commission that's more concentrated and then you know has fewer voices talking on its behalf i think that would be a good thing but i i recognize it's not easy yeah i was gonna say you think your own suggestion of ending strasbourg would be difficult (laughs) (laughs) tearing the the different commissioners and perhaps not giving every country one would be a huge Well, but I mean, there was, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an agreement on this in the Lisbon Treaty uh, that, mm. this, <clears throat> that this would happen. But then after the Irish uh, uh, voted no, there was sort of a reflection and it was decided that by unanimous decision of the council, this would not enter into effect. So uh, it, it hasn't happened yet, but I fully agree with Georgina. You know, I don't know any uh, administration or government that first looks at the number of people they need to give a job and then decides how to divide these jobs. I mean, every government that is serious would look at what are our priorities for the next five years, what kind of uh, ministries or commissioners do we need for that, and then divide the responsibilities. And we've seen that so clearly in the pandemic, firstly, where we've seen sort of countries having vaccines ministers or sort of pandemic ministers, not necessarily just here in the EU, but around the world. Also, Mm. climate ministers and stuff, people just directly focused on climate and that that has become 
a really elevated sort of position where it was perhaps considered. It would make things much clearer uh, of people following um, the European Union as well. Not only having uh, less commissioners, but also more of a concrete uh, plan of what we're going to do the next five years, what are our priorities. I think that would... Yeah. That would so I fully agree, and I'm very upset, actually, uh, in a way that... No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't want to over-dramatize sorry, it. we didn't mean to. No, but I think, I think it, it, it's really... The, the fact that this was something we already agreed to do, mm. but then because of political uh, persuasions and unanimity decisions in the council, we're actually still not doing. These are exactly the things that would make people think, yeah, right, but... You know, can't do it. Yeah. What are, what are we looking at here? Mm. So I, I think that is something. Uh, it's difficult, but it should it should be done. And there are many ways to do it. Especially also because let's not forget the European Commission is supposed to represent all European citizens. It's not supposed to be a place where twenty seven representatives mm. of national governments come and do their business. Yeah. In practice, it mm. sometimes is like that. But this is the group of people that should represent the European citizens as such. Yeah. Uh, and then you can do that also with uh, 15 or 18 or whatever. This is a whole nother podcast, I think, as well. But Georgina... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm going to come back to you, Georgina. Is there, is there, are there any other issues you think could be updated through the treaties? Um... Or, or any, or any. Or I suppose perhaps we can. I can turn that question. But is there any sort of failures in Maastricht that could be easily updated and changed in your mind? I I always think that easily is quite yeah. is quite dangerous <laughs> with the EU because you need yeah to to do anything you need to get a lot of people on board. Um, and Jeroen's absolutely right that it's you know it's it, the, whatever comes out of the EU is the result of compromise. Um, but but that compromise is often very difficult to get. Um, I mean, I think there are questions around the, the four freedoms that you know came out as a result of, of Maastricht, um, freedom of movement, freedom of capital. I think that we still need to do quite a lot on services to make sure that there really is a single market in services. There are a lot of obstacles there, and, and if you talk to businesses, they say the EU could be so you know do so much more to facilitate um, uh, you know trade and services inside the EU and it would make uh, the EU market even stronger on the international stage. So I think that's one sort of concrete measure. Mm. Um, there are things that you can look at in terms of how do you you know, generate more investment. The EU is, is, you know, looking at the next generation EU, which was this mass investment plan that the EU adopted uh, to kind of uh, try and, 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 you know, diminish the economic uh, impact of, of COVID um, and getting the EU to kind of borrow on the international markets and then through that uh, mix of grants and loans to EU member states so they can generate and, you know, pump money into, into their economy. Is there something that the EU could do there? Is is that something that the you know the treaties could look at, try and find new measures, new flexible tools to do that? Um, but I think fundamentally the big one for me would be uh, around freedom of movement, Schengen. I mean, there is a sense that uh, Schengen is being threatened, um, and that's both the external borders, but also what's happening internally. Um, and I think that there too. It's not a revision of the treaty, but it's certainly coming back to it and thinking, you know, what is it that people are concerned about and what could we do to make sure that those concerns are being addressed and, and ultimately resolved as well? Yeah, um, for me, I think if I add one more thing, because you mm -hmm. spoke in the beginning of the 
uh, about the common foreign and security policy. Uh, I already mentioned the fact that I think it's a bit outdated now that we still need 27 member states unanimously deciding on whether to sanction uh, a, a third country or not. I think that's something that could be easily uh, changed in the, in the treaty uh, to make sure that our foreign policy becomes a little bit more effective and... Uh, can I step in here just quickly? Do you not think, though, that because sanctions do have to be implemented on a national level, that it would mean that the sanctions regimes would therefore be perhaps more ineffective? But this, this of course, in the end, it depends on, on whether um, member states follow uh, the rules that were agreed to. I mean, which we spoke about earlier, which is, this is know, uh, but what if it's Germany that doesn't yeah, follow the rules? But there, there is, I think there is room for improvement there anyway, because at the same time, there is many areas in in the European Union where we already decide with qualified majority voting and we wouldn't accept of any member states that say okay but I don't like this rule I voted against it I will not implement it I mean the, this is this is the thing there Europe is not an a la carte menu where you pick and choose the things you like and you ignore the other things because then it would never work in in the long run so we need to do this together and it also means that we cannot allow, if we want to be a serious uh, player in the global politics, we cannot allow uh, a country with 300,000 inhabitants to block uh, to block mm. sanctions on uh, uh, on Russia, for instance. I think that is simply not credible. So that is something we need to change. I agree, but maybe slightly from a different angle with, with Georgina on, on, on sort of the four freedoms and freedom of movement and freedom of services. Because I think it's absolutely crucial uh, in the European Union. At the same time, compared to Maastricht, uh, we're now 30 years later, but compared to Maastricht, the sort of the, the, the differences between member states in terms of economic uh, development, in terms mm. of salaries, of course, have, have changed radically. Uh, mm. In the 12 member states of Maastricht, we're already quite diverse. But since the enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe as well, these, these, these differences have become larger. Uh, and that also makes the whole topic of freedom of movement, freedom of services, freedom of capital uh, very different. Uh, and we need to make sure that we have a strong common market, but also a fair common market that allows for member states to... I mean, if you look at the, the Brexit debate, was was very unfairly, I think, a lot about freedom of movement. Uh, but there is a sense of, of concern there for many, um, many citizens of Europe that completely free movement is maybe also not the answer. And this is a debate that's been going on in the European Union since the 50s yeah. uh, that we won't solve today, unfortunately. But it is something to really look at. I agree. Listen, I would love to continue talking about this, but uh, I think we're coming uh, to the to the end there. The 30th anniversary of that Maastricht Treaty is uh, February the 7th, obviously, when Belgium, Denmark, France, Greece, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, the UK and Germany signed on and really changed how the European Union uh, looks. So a huge thank you to you, Jeroen, for being with us here in the European Parliament. That was a pleasure. And thank you so much to Georgina Wright, who's been joining us from Paris. No, thank you. So that's it from this episode of the EPP Group podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Remember to follow the EPP Group across social media and stay subscribed to this podcast channel. I've been Jack Parrick. Thank you so much for being with us. Mm -hmm.